0: I'm
1: the Rhythm Writer, and this is For Posterity. It's for posterity. It's for posterity. It's for posterity. Well, here we are. Here we are. It's episode two, season 10. I'm your host, The Rhythm Writer, and this is For Posterity. I'm so happy. Why? Well, because I'm alive, right? I'm so happy because you're listening. And I'm so happy because this episode features David Katz. David Katz is an author, documentary producer, and DJ born in San Francisco and now a longtime resident in London. I'm happy to have him on this episode because like me, David Katz is a big fan of dub music. He's also Lee Scratch Perry's biographer, and that's pretty awesome. Now, he wrote People Funny Boy, The Genius of Lee Scratch Perry, which was originally published in 2000. But in 2021, that text had a huge update. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, what kinds of updates are featured in the rewrite. And we're also going to talk about just music, right? What does it mean? What does Dub feel like for him? What is his experience with it? And through this discussion, I hope it helps you to understand what Dub is. Now, David Katz has also contributed his words and his voice to various deep dives into reggae music, such as The Rough Guide to Reggae. And he's co hosted radio programs, and he's, as I mentioned earlier, produced documentaries. These are documentaries on the music and culture of Jamaica, of the broader Caribbean, and also of Brazil. And David Katz is also the host of a monthly reggae vinyl night called Dub Me Always. And this is something he's been doing for nearly 20 years. So, again, this episode is gonna be about dub, it's gonna be about music. And it's going to be a discussion about his multi-decades-long relationship with the music and also with Lee Scratch Perry, who passed to the other side in 2021. We're going to talk, we're going to reminisce, and we're going to laugh. But there's going to be a part that we're going to get into that perhaps might have been a touchier topic, a touchier topic for Scratch. And maybe Scratch was not so keen on discussing this topic, and maybe that's why something peculiar happens during our conversation. Something dubby, or should I say duppy, happens. Now I won't say much more now, you'll just have to listen and find out. So this is it, episode 2 of season 10, I'm your host, The Rhythm Writer, and let's get into the conversation. Um, with a little knock, knock, knock on wood. And you have a a Lea Perry story there. Right?
2: Um, so there's a few actually. Um, give
1: it all to
2: me. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was one of the songs that he was inspired by, you know, the, um, Brenton Wood soul original. So he did some cover versions of it. Um, he did an adaptation of it. There we go. And not only that, but when he was, um, when things had gone, you know, haywire, And he was uh, going through his transformation in the early 1980s, and the studio was becoming more and more dilapidated, and then the control room catches fire and so on. Uh, Gary Weiss came down from Los Angeles and was working on a Bob Marley documentary for Chris Blackwell. And he filmed Scratch in the wreckage of the, the arc, down on the ground floor where the musicians used to record their backing tracks but by that point you know all that was in there was uh, a very battered bass guitar that had one string the same bass that had played on all those black art classics mm-hmm. and um like the remnants of a drum kit that were really uh not in very good shape And, um, when Gary Weiss films him in this room, he sings quite some lines from Knock on Wood. But Mm. then midway through, kind of, uh, goes over to the drum kit and starts bashing on the drum kit and, uh, saying something about I'm just a crazy man. Mm. Yeah, like over and over again. So, Mm. yeah, so, you know, Knock on Wood was definitely on his brain. In Mm. fact, he had tried to record it when he was working on the History Mystery Prophecy album as well. Mm. Yeah, when Chris Blackwell took him to the Bahamas, yeah, to record there. And I think he must not have been happy with the result because it never made it onto that album.
1: You know, this is why I'm talking to you for posterity, because you have these stories just at the ready, just kind of right behind the teeth, waiting (laughs) to just pour out, (laughs) you know? Um, How many, for our listeners, I suppose, how long have you been in Lee Scratch Perry's um, uh, orbit, if
2: you will? So um, in terms of A physical meeting face to face in the flesh that took place in uh, January 1987 Mm -hmm. now so of course his music had been part of me for some considerable time before that like going back Mm -hmm. to the 70s specifically when police and thieves came out you know I used to hear it regularly on the one radio station in my little town where I grew up, San Rafael in Northern California, north of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and then also there were a lot of his productions that I knew that I wasn't really cognizant that it was Lee Scratch Perry at work, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Uh, Dumpy Conqueror and Soul Rebel and those. Incredible sets of records that he made with Bob Marley and the Whalers. but the way I knew them were on these cheaply packaged, budget-priced uh, uh, compilation albums that just mm-hmm. you know had a a cheap photo of Bob Marley on the cover and not much by way of credits. And right. in fact, I I had a lot of that stuff on cassette, and I used to drag it around on cassette. So it was only oh my yes, yeah, so it was only kind of later. Oh, a lot of my early reggae it was cassette was my medium because I just had my little clock radio by my bedside and I had a portable Mm. cassette recorder. And uh, the one radio station in my little town there, San Rafael was KTIM San Rafael. Right. Yeah. So Doug went, had this show Midnight Dread every Sunday night. It was like 10 to midnight and he would just play this incredible music and I would tape, the show and listen to it all week until next week's show and then tape that.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: What was it, do you think, about the music that hit you so much? Like, what was it that that penetrated your mind, your body? What was it?
2: So I remember very well um, listening to a radio broadcast. It was probably Midnight Dread show, but it could have been one of the other um, there were some college radio stations in the Bay Area, like KUSF, the radio station of the University of San Francisco, and KALX, which was the UC Berkeley station. And there were some community stations, KPFA in Berkeley and KPOO in San Francisco, which broadcast from the heart of the the African American community in uh, what was called the Western Edition in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. and they all had reggae radio shows so you know i could listen to reggae every day of the week and i did and um i remember distinctly hearing this broadcast of uh, a song from an album called Jukes Incorporated which uh, which was a studio one dub album mm. and it was just the st- you know this kind of phenomenal sound one of the strangest things i'd ever heard it was just nye drumming with a uh, an organ melody on top of it uh, a mm-hmm. chanted chorus and a man on the top of it saying something like isis isis i i remember rastafari scene and then everything echoing in stereo with stereo panning it was like, what on earth is this? You know, this is music <laughs> that just breaks all the rules. And then of course right. the, the bass was up to the fore, not the guitar, mm-hmm. which I was used to in rock music. And you know, it was just like that I think that was the thing that appealed to me. It was music that broke all the rules. It had a creative use of language. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it I had to think about what I was listening to. So and then I remember when I got a hold of the album Super Ape uh, from a record shop that was around the corner from my apartment when I'd moved by that time when I was living in San Francisco. Um, and it was just, you know, it was just an astounding album. And again, it was an album that needed thinking about. It was a very immersive auditory experience. And, you know, then... Little by little, I was later able to connect the dots to understand that, well, actually, this is a dub version of this other song. Right. You know, and then, oh, here's Prince Jazzbo on top of a Max Romeo, a rhythm of a Max Romeo record, or, you know, whatever it may be. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I like the, what you said. He said it's the, it was the strangest music that you'd ever heard. Yeah. And then you described it also as being a rebel music. And I'm just wondering, did you think of yourself as a rebel? Was it the rebel in you that was attracted to the rebel in the music? Or, or was it much more about that thinking element?
2: Um, it's probably all of the above. You know, when I think back on myself and my life and whatever, my uh, perception is that I didn't choose to be a nonconformist, it just, that's the way it worked out. But, you know, there are some people who believe that we do choose these paths or, or we even choose uh, what vessel we will uh, inhabit on Earth, so to speak, if you see what I mean. Right. So, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Do we choose it or we don't choose it? it? To me, it always felt like I didn't choose it. It's just the way that uh, it manifested. So I think it's a bit like that the music appealed to me because it broke all the rules.
0: Mm. Yeah. Mm.
1: And you were well aware of these rules. Um, can can you talk a bit about your your academic training or or and or can you also talk about your interest in music prior to? Oh, sure. Dub? OK,
2: so look. <laughs> so um, <laughs> in terms of music, So I've I've always I feel very fortunate to have been born where and when I was born, Uh, Mm -hmm. and from a musical perspective and from other for other reasons. But so I grew up in a house full of music with uh, parents who just loved music and who loved different kinds of music. Mm -hmm. So my mother was really big on Western classical music and opera and then my father was like a jazz head he listened to jazz every day and then he also had like lead belly 10 inches you know and and my mother had calypso records uh yeah calypso Um. 10 inches which i still have here i'm looking at them right now oh nice (laughs) so so you know all that was in the household and then also my dad uh liked a lot of the rock music that was happening at the time and he had good taste so i remember right around the time when my parents got divorced when i was about four and a half coming up to five years old my dad bringing into the house like santana's first album and the the door's first album and uh i remember him bringing home magical mystery tour by the beatles right when it came out and and Mm. uh sergeant pepper and abbey road and let it be and then my sister brought home the white album so yes, oh, yeah so God. you know and and we had also in my sister's room there was uh one of these uh what what here they would call a radiogram
0: mm-hmm.
2: everybody in britain yeah. talks about the blue spot gram which was made by Blaupunkt, a German company, Blue oh, okay. Spot. Yeah, mm-hmm. and you know, these were like uh, one big turntable that, that was a piece of furniture that had like a drinks cabinet. It was built into a drinks cabinet.
0: So, so right. my
2: parents had one of these, but it was in my sister's room by the time, you know, I came along, I was growing up. And it was a Grundig. And so it was this massive piece of equipment with just one big speaker. So mm-hmm. you know, my earliest memories was listening to music on that. And then mm-hmm. also, my mother ushered at the local concert hall, which was oh, okay. yeah, which was uh, adjacent to where she worked uh, mm-hmm. at the county hall. And it was this beautiful building designed by the architect Frank Lloyd Wright. So the the concert hall just had excellent acoustics. And then again, you know, I was really fortunate that Ali Akbar Khan, this musician from India, started a music school in San Rafael. So yeah, so all these really high caliber, high level Indian classical musicians would come to play regularly at that concert hall. And my mother took me there from, I was like, you know, uh, a toddler essentially so i would i i heard a lot of western classical music but i also heard a lot of indian classical music mm-hmm. so all these things just you know really opened my mind to different kinds of music and different kinds of sounds and then having ktim be the you know the one radio station in the town where i was growing up that was just you know midnight dread was You can listen to some of those broadcasts if you search online. He was really ahead of his time. He did not just play commercial reggae that was released by Island Records or, you know, he played a really wide range. He played deep, deep stuff and he played a lot of Black Ark music. He'd actually interviewed Lee Scratch Perry at the Black Ark in, I think, 1981. Mm -hmm. And, um, where he asks Scratch one question Oh, is this the Black Ark? And then he gets, you know, rah, 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 like the next, the next half hour, you know, nothing but Scratch answering that question.
0: And, yeah. right.
2: and so, and he had, he was like a real ambassador for the music and the culture mm-hmm. of Jamaica. He traveled frequently to Jamaica and he had a lot mm-hmm. of guests on the show from Jamaica. So I remember, for instance, the Wailing Souls. Uh, guests on his show singing kingdom rise kingdom fall acapella in the studio yeah like the week that the firehouse rock album came out and i remember the hairs sticking up on the back of my neck it was just exquisite Mm. and then he had a dub poet from jamaica explaining what dub poetry is explaining what niobingi is and yeah so you know this was just like a window into another world
0: Mm-hmm. Now,
2: in terms of, when? yeah, sorry.
0: No, go ahead. Oh, go no, ahead. I was just going
2: to say, you know, the other thing you were asking about my academic background and blah, blah, blah. Right. So, you know, I grew up in a time and a place, things were really different back then. There was only one school. So, so we all went to the same school. Now, <laughs> later, high school, so and junior high and high school, we had to be bused there because there was nothing in, in the neighborhood but again you know there was only one of each so depending on where you lived you were either going to one or the other and funny enough by the time i got to high school i had taken my you in those days if you wanted to host a radio show you had to have a license from the fcc the federal communications commission so when i was a teenager i took the test and i got my broadcaster's license but but Mm -hmm. my High school didn't have a radio station, but the rival high school had a radio station. Mm
0: -hmm. So I
2: started a little radio show there. And um, yeah, and then it was like uh, high school age. There were two private schools somewhere nearby. One was a Catholic school. So if you were Catholic and you could afford it, you might go there, you know. We, we weren't Catholic, we weren't going there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. And then the other private school, yeah, I don't really know, it was just some private academy. I guess it was people who had money went there. So, you know, again, mm-hmm. I never went there. And then um, when it was time to go to university, a vocational guidance counselor talked me out of applying to UC Berkeley. Mm. Yeah, I've you know, probably that person was in the wrong job. <laughs> Probably. <Yeah>. So, <laughs> yeah. so i applied to uh the ucla okay. um uc santa cruz and san francisco state and i was accepted to all three but you know i went down to los angeles for the first time with a friend who'd also been accepted there and i didn't mm-hmm. like it down there i didn't like the atmosphere it was mm heavily racially segregated much more than san francisco was which which Mm. i must say san francisco itself was and still is also quite segregated in my view but ucla was like dramatically much more obviously segregated and there was also yeah i just i didn't like the environment on campus at ucla and I didn't really particularly want to study in Los Angeles or live there. And then Santa Cruz was like a big agricultural college with some humanities on the side. So I thought, "Eh, I love San Francisco, I enjoy where I live. Let me go to San Francisco State University. So it was a lower status university. However, uh, the quality of the teaching was high and it had a history of radicalism. So you mm-hmm. had Nathan Hare who was a sociologist who was a black separatist and I studied under him and mm-hmm. um I had I took a great class in uh Native American studies and mm-hmm. uh comparative folklore and the literature department was very well established and I had some great literature courses there um yeah so i enjoyed my time at SF State, and then i ended up coming over here um well i came here first before i started university i had i had a gap year okay yeah i took a test to get out of high school early i found out in those days yeah you could uh it was the california state proficiency test Mm -hmm. i took that i was living at home I got a job at the local community college. I was earning good money. I was working overtime, so I'd get time and a half in the evenings, double time on the weekends, and I wasn't paying tax. Oh, so. Yeah, and so, you know, I saved up some money and I came over here.
1: What brought you there? Why did you choose to go to England for that year?
2: Uh, so, you know, I can remember being five years old and sitting down with my mother to watch uh, the movie Help the Beatles movie with my mom on TV Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and seeing uh, a hard day's night and yellow submarine. And, you know, we, I was like a Beatles nut. So I had this kind of fascination (laughs) with Britain to start with. Then I remember my dad took a trip here when I was about nine years old and he sent some Mm -hmm. postcards back and he brought some stuff back and I was like, wow, I'm really fascinated by this. You know, I'd like to go. And then my twin loves, From teenage onwards was reggae and post punk, punk and post punk Mm -hmm. and reggae. So there was a lot of interesting music coming out of Manchester in those days, Factory Records, and of course there was a lot of great British reggae happening at that time too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I just really wanted wanted to see what was here and just experience it. So Yeah. yeah, I saved up the money and I came, and it completely blew my mind to Smithereens. And you know and reggae was everywhere right it was like um where i grew up if you went if you could picture northern california and the san francisco bay area geographically Mm -hmm. there's a lot of separation by bodies of water and some small mountain ranges or large hills so you know san francisco itself is completely self-contained if you to to leave the city to the north you have to cross the golden gate bridge to leave the city to the east you have to cross the bay bridge you can't go any farther west cuz you're on the pacific and right. to go to the next town south you have to cross over a small mountain range so you know it's the distances are very pronounced it's exactly the opposite of the situation here in london where one neighborhood blends into the next and soon you you find yourself in another county mm. so in terms of a Jamaican community, there was a small Jamaican community in the city of Oakland, Okay, but you know, Oakland wasn't that near. Oakland was like uh, an hour or an hour and a half on public transportation from San Francisco, or, or when I still lived at home and I was in Centerville, it's more like two hours.
1: And did the music encourage you to want to go to that community?
2: No, because it was a very insular community, okay. And also, it wasn't like in Britain where the Jamaican communities all had sound systems everywhere that were playing out, and right? It right. was like this small insular community that wasn't very visible or audible. That was that was okay. how it was in those days, right? So um, I remember this pivotal moment when Jack Ruby High Power came to the Bay Area to do some to some sound system gigs. The fifty thousand watts of dub power tour. I will never forget it, it was a transformative moment in my life yeah. going to that event at the Elite Club in San Francisco, which was a few doors down from the hospital where I was born, actually. Okay. And then even stranger, if you drilled through the wall you would have you would have entered what had been Jim Jones' People's Temple.
1: Oh wow! Yeah,
2: very very strange set of really? yeah yeah. Mm. So you know, um, but mm-hmm. so I remember it was advertised as um, Bobby Culture, Yellow Man, and Brigadier Jerry. But mm-hmm. in the end, it, it was Bobby Culture, Louis Lepke, and Lee Van Cleef, and also it mm-hmm. wasn't. Jack Ruby's actual sound system from Jamaica, he came to Miami and he picked up a sound system which might have mm-hmm. been Skanged On Sound, or I can't remember. Um, I would have to ask my friend who actually put that show on. Yeah, okay. Lister, Hugh, and Lowe. But, so it was this 50,000 watts of dub power tour, and just to give you context again, on the back of the flyer, it had an explanation of what is a sound system. Oh yeah! So this was really a showcasing to introduce people outside of the community, outside of the Jamaican communities of Miami and Brooklyn. I yeah, nobody—I don't think anybody in, in the states knew what a sound system was. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. It wasn't. It was the. It was the exact opposite of the situation in Britain. If you see what I mean, where where right, there had right. sound systems. There, there, there'd already been a sound clash in 1957, I think, or eight in Brixton Town Hall. Right. Yeah, so, so it was like, okay, there's a sound system. Now, I mean, I'd seen Jack Ruby in Rockers playing the sound, mm. but nothing prepared me for the mind-boggling reality of what the experience was like walking into the room where i'd seen all kinds of gigs before you know nothing prepared me for feeling the weight of the sound bodily feeling feeling the Mm. bass reverberate my ribcage and and impact my hips and and actually i had this experience at that event where i was compelled to dance for the first time in my life yeah i i had no choice i was dancing and um what
1: do you what do you mean you had no choice
2: my legs moved my body moved my body reacted to the sound the physicality of what was happening in the space my mind didn't have a chance to think about it my body just did it
1: Mm. did you feel i felt would you say you were i felt
2: fantastic i felt (laughs) i felt i felt liberated (laughs) so Mm. but and, and you have to understand as well that so, and, so entering this room and here are these custom-built speaker boxes, you know, these stacks that looked mm-hmm. beautiful and just sounded extraordinary. And then not only that, I couldn't understand what was happening. I'm hearing songs that I knew by Burning Spear, but they didn't sound like the record because right. the... Operator is manipulating the EQ, you know, dropping out the bass and waiting for that exact moment to then hit you with the bass. And then of course, Mm -hmm. um, Louis Lepke, Lee Van Cliff like doing these extemporaneous toasting and rhyming all over it. And Selector Mm -hmm. Fatjaw just throwing down these incredible selections and dub plates. And then later, Jack Ruby himself came and took the controls. So, yeah, it was just, you know, I will never forget it. And it,
1: I mean, it's 50,000 watts of
2: dub power. You should not forget it. <laughs> yeah, I never will. F- I couldn't forget it, even if I tried. So, you know, it was transformative. It just really sucked me in. It, I just I wanted mm. to experience more and learn more. But at that dance, I remember the community was very well represented. Mm-hmm. So it was like, oh wow, where where are all these Jamaicans? We're, you know, where are they right. coming from? So, but they mm-hmm. were coming from mm-hmm. Oakland, and there was also a very a tiny uh, presence in San Francisco. There used to be a record shop called Jam Down, but it closed, run by a Jamaican, okay. and then there was Prince Neville's. And it was this restaurant where you could get curry goat. And he was also selling import albums from Jamaica. I think mm-hmm. I bought uh, the Sly and Robbie album, Gambler's Choice, mm. a dub album there, for instance. Yeah. Mm. So, so, yeah. So, so anyway, so there you go.
1: Yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to understand what was it like when you first came to Jamaica then?
2: Oh. Wow. Well, so, okay. So, yeah, yeah. Coming to Jamaica was like a dream come true. That was one of those, Mm -hmm. you know, I'd waited so long to get there, but I didn't want to just go there as a tourist. I wanted to get there when the time was right to do what I needed to do there, which that's after 10 years of rejection letters from publishers. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, um, But-
1: What had you been pitching?
2: The Lee Scratch Perry book, because- And they just said, no, no, no. They said, okay, ironically, one publisher who later published an edition of the book said, Mm -hmm. if this is a book about Bob Marley, we might consider it. And I said, it is a book about Bob Marley.
1: (laughs) Right. from the other angle. (laughs) Yeah,
2: but so, you know, Lee Scratch Perry at that time did not have the status that he was later accorded, and he didn't have the status that he'd previously been accorded. He -hmm. was at a low ebb and he was out of the public eye, and he had a low status, and reggae generally had a low status. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so um, anyway, I, I guess I should mention that before that. So um I found a way to come back to England. So so yeah, so grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, came to London 1983 when I was seventeen. It totally blew my mind. Stayed for a few months and traveled around Europe for a little bit. And then I went back and I started uh at SF State and Initially, I was doing creative writing, but I ended up doing a a literature degree instead and Mm -hmm. uh, minoring in film, and I was trying to find a way to come back. I knew that there was an exchange program where you could do your junior year abroad in London, and I couldn't afford it. It was just too expensive but then in my senior year i found out that there was a similar program but you could enroll through the california state university system I'd do okay. it yeah so you know in those days it was like 330 dollars for a term <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was it's laughable yeah, now so right? it, was, it was definitely affordable <laughs> so right. i did it i enrolled and i came back here at the end of 86 to do my last term of my BA in English literature. And within being back, by then I'd started writing for uh, an underground uh, music magazine called Wiring Department. So it started by a very fascinating individual from Sri Lanka who later started a magazine called Murder Dog, which is kind of a legendary uh, rap publication from the Bay Area. But in those days, he'd he'd started a wiring department. I started writing for it. And I wrote my first article about Lee Scratch Perry in that magazine. Mm
0: -hmm. And
2: when I came back to London at the end of 86, I found that Scratch was living here. So I made contact with one of a very long string of People who tried and failed to manage Scratch
0: said that I (laughs) wanted
2: to interview him. And he explained to me that the advertisement for Scratch's performance at Dingwalls was supposed to be in the end of January 1987, but they'd gotten the date wrong. It was actually going to be in March or April. So he said, Come down to the gig because Scratch is going to make an appearance so that he can apologize to all his adoring fans would be disappointed but in those days scratch was notorious for not showing up for his own gigs or or in the middle of the gig he would often cuss the band on stage in the middle of the performance right you know scratch was haunted by a lot of demons at that time he had some serious issues with alcohol as well as weed Mm -hmm. but the main problem was alcohol So I went down there, and I met Scratch, and the adoring fans really weren't anywhere in sight. But Mm -hmm. so I had this copy of the article I'd written about him in wiring department, which I gave to him. Mm -hmm. We were supposed to do an interview, but of course, we never got around to the interview that night because he was too busy doing all his rituals. Mm. But he took the magazine home with him. And the next day I got a phone call from his manager saying, uh, Scratch wants to see you. And he summoned me down to this recording studio where Scratch had based himself down in Southeast London in Rotherhithe. Mm -hmm. And so I met Scratch there and he put me through this kind of initiation ceremony where I had to go and get him 13 stones from the river Thames, which he then put inside a video monitor because he used to carry a video camera everywhere and film himself while he was working. Or if he was driving in a car, he would film through the rearview mirror so that everything was reflected backwards. And then he would go home and overdub him and his girlfriend arguing on onto the soundtrack or whatever else took his fancy. Yeah, so... So so that was it so scratch was like okay you're the ghostwriter and he made me wear this ring that i was supposed to wear every time i wrote and then that was it i was the ghostwriter i was like scratch what do you mean and so it was you know he'd been searching for somebody to help in ghostwriters autobiography right. so that just inducted me into this whole other universe literally you know right. and so i saw him every day at his request for the next two years until mm-hmm. he had some immigration issues and he eventually left the UK. And then I saw him less frequently, but we still remained in contact.
0: Right.
2: So that was the beginning of my journey and my 10 years of rejection letters. And then when I finally <laughs> found a publisher who understood the importance of a Lee Scratch Perry an authorized Lee Scratch Perry biography, the first publisher who didn't say Lee who Mm. and uh, they offered me a ridiculously low advance but it was enough to get me to Jamaica Mm. and so you know going to Jamaica for the first time was really like a revelation for me Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes some of the limitations obviously people who write about Jamaica, who aren't Jamaican, there are a lot of limitations. Uh, and I would say people who write about Jamaican music who've never been to Jamaica probably face the largest set of limitations.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know,
2: a lot, so many things made sense.
1: Right, once you land. Yeah, out.
2: but you know, mm-hmm. and also Jamaica takes time to get to know. Mm-hmm. So, the mm-hmm. more time one spends there, the more one understands. Right. So, it, it's a and process. It,
1: it also helps. Right. And I guess your arrival, your entrance into Jamaica, helped you to better understand Lee Scratch. Oh,
2: of course. You have to understand. Okay. So, you know, Scratch used to play this game with me where every so often he would come and fix me with a stony gaze and say, what about this book you're writing, which was of course, you know, the book mm-hmm. he commanded me to write. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> so, right. and I'm like, um, scratch this, there's, there's still too much. I don't know. I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm making progress, but there's still still too much. I don't know anything you want to know. Just ask me. Well, okay, scratch. Mm-hmm. So, um, I want to know about your parents, you know, were they farming people? Oh, well, you want to know about my parents. You go and ask my mother cause mother knows best. I'm like, but scratch, what do you mean? I mean, is your mother, is she still alive? Oh, blood clot, David, you don't see it. Me dead already, me is a ghost. And then that would be it. No, nothing more on the subject. But you see, this was his way. He was saying to me, if you really want to understand me, you have to go to Jamaica and you have to sit down Mm -hmm. with my mother and you have to talk to my mother. And he was right. Mm -hmm. I got to Jamaica, Mm -hmm. I went and I met his mother. His mother insisted that I sleep in her bed and that she would go and sleep in the the other room with Mm -hmm. all his grown siblings. Most of them were still living with her in a Mm -hmm. two room shack that only had electricity because Scratch had put it in. And when he offered to put in running water, she refused it. So if you Mm -hmm. wanted water, you had to go down to the standpipe, which was some considerable distance. Mm -hmm. But obviously, meeting his mother and sitting down with his mother and spending a good couple days with her, that taught me a lot about Scratch that I would not have understood otherwise. Mm
0: -hmm. And and Mm -hmm. it was the
2: same in spending time with his siblings and of course his children. And right. you know, and so on, and and his his former partner, the, his baby mother. Yeah. Right. You know?
1: If we can kind of just step into your relationship, um, if I can call it that, um, if you're comfortable with me saying that, your relationship that you did form with his mother, um, because what we you know what we know, of course, is that she was an etu uh, yes. queen, yes. right? And so you told me us about your parents, right? And the kind of sounds and really philosophy that your parents had on life and culture, right? Because it seems that that was implanted onto you. You were born into that kind of space of understanding and appreciating culture, not just yours, but other people's culture as well. Um, With the Indian music, Indian classical music, et cetera, et cetera, this appreciation for sounds and culture. Can you talk a bit about how you how you came to understand Lee Scratch Perry's mother and what you think she offered him, Alfred Rainford, her son? <laughs>
2: OK, so she was an extraordinary woman. That's the first thing I would say about Lee Scratch Perry's mother, Miss Ina.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, she was um, she had a forceful personality. And you could see that they were close. She was very fond of him and he was very fond of her. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: You could see that they had maintained that. I think they only had this one when, uh, the control room of the studio burned. I think she distanced herself from him for a time, Mm -hmm. which is understandable. But you could see that they had a special relationship, that they had a deep bond and this kind of uh, unconditional love for each other. And I think um, Scratch didn't really have that much. That was probably somewhat unique for him, right?
1: To have that close relationship with her?
2: To have that relationship with anyone.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, Mm -hmm. so. It's not that he didn't have it. He had it with his children, but then in later years, th- things with his children became disrupted. But, but right. with his mother, they overcame the disruption and the bond never ceased. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So, so, But what I would say about my experience with her, it was a bit like his younger half-brother had to translate for us. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> she would, i would ask a question she would like look at me in bafflement and then he would have mm. to relay it to her slightly in patois and then you mm. know she would relay it to him and he would relay it back to me but i understood what she was saying mm. so and it was a bit like in terms of her being an etu queen when i brought it mm. up she just began to dance it that was her explanation for me whereas in terms of what it was all about and why she did it and that came from scratch he told me about it but he didn't tell me about it until much much later he didn't tell me about it until after the book he told me somewhat about it the first time around but he told me about it in much greater detail after the first edition of the book had been published, so so the second this new edition that was published in twenty twenty one in December, yes. that has a lot more hardcore clear information about it that right. isn't in the first one. So yeah, so it's a bit like that,
1: right? Well, let me jump in right yeah. there, right? So yes, the update to to Lee Scratch Perry's this book that you've written on him, right, People Funny Boy, is published in 2021. White Rabbit is the publisher. And it's interesting that you're saying that the story, at least of Etu, um, is, you know, much clearer here. The information is clearer um, because that's, I guess, the riddle of working with someone like Lee Scratch Perry is that nothing ever on the face of it seems to be coming at you the listener with clarity right that this is a clear straight story um in any kind of linear way so i'm I'm curious to to understand your journalistic experience of working with lee scratch perry as his assigned ghostwriter with all rituals and Mm -hmm. the summoning and everything that happened i'm curious to understand that process for you and, and I'll give you just kind of, I'm gonna give you back your own words as a way of uh, letting you understand what I'm thinking. Okay. Um, when, you, when you were talking with, with Miss Ina, yeah. you had to speak through someone else. <laughs> and when she's talking to you, she had to speak through someone else. And this idea of relay, right? The relaying the information. And of course, this concern, I would assume, of what gets, about what gets lost in the relay or in the translation, but I prefer relay because of the music, the musical production element of relay, um, and what happens when when sound is relayed. So, can you talk about how 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 you came to gather the stories that you gathered, and how much doubt, <laughs> if any, do you have in their quote unquote validity? Their throw that out. Right,
2: right. Okay, so this is a complicated question. Um just mm-hmm. just to clarify a little better with Miss Ina. I got this sense first of all probably she didn't have much if any contact with white people in her life. I met her she was 85 years old. Mm-hmm. And you know, maybe my accent was a little Different to what she was used to. But I think it was more the concept of, you know, who the hell is this guy? And why does he want to talk to me? But because her son was there, her youngest son, he could make her feel at ease. And he could relay to her what I really wanted to know. In terms of her response, I didn't need him to mediate. <laughs> but oh, really? but she felt more comfortable saying it to him rather than to me. Mm. Okay. Mm. Now, in terms of mm. gathering data and fact-finding missions and so on. You know, there's so much that has been written about Jamaica and Jamaican music that has been factually incorrect.
0: And there and
2: there are various reasons for that. And, you know, I don't want to try to claim that my work is any different because when I went back through this book to revise it for the edition for White Rabbit, I was like, oh my, there were far more errors in it than I realized. Mm
0: -hmm. And I
2: only know that now because I'd spent much more time in Jamaica and because Mm -hmm. people were able to Point out parts that were not right or to state information that made it clear that something wasn't right. And also, Lee Scratch Perry played a great role in that process because he went through this transformation from not giving a straight answer about anything, giving those kind of answers about, you want to know about my parents, go and ask my mother because mother knows best, to, you know, me dead already, me's a ghost, end of story kind of thing. He opened up after the book was published and after he'd stopped drinking and then at a time when he'd stopped smoking weed. So he had a clarity and an openness. You know, maybe it took him like uh, 15 years to feel that he could trust me adequately to talk to me about Mm. some of these things. And also I think he was in a better frame of mind You know, in the mid to late 1980s, he was really haunted by the past. It tormented him and he was trying to run away from it. Mm -hmm. In later years, it was different. He could look back on much of those times and not have it be, not have the trauma overwhelm him. That was my experience. Right. And then with Scratch, you have to understand that one of the reasons why he and I related to each other is because I love wordplay. So we would both mm. wordplay off each other. That was one of the things that attracted me to reggae in the first place. I'm just thinking, just for a very quick example, there's a line in a Barrington Levy song, long time ago called Youth Man, long time ago mm. when my eyes was at my knees. Now, I just remember hearing that as a teenager and thinking, ah, this is excellent. I love that. You see what Mm -hmm. I mean? And the whole use of words, the I words in Rastafari language is fascinating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if scratch would go off into some symbolic soliloquizing or whatever, you know, um i i could get into that space with him and i think that's one of the things about me that appealed to him Mm -hmm. so but it was very very difficult in those early years trying to get straight hard information out of scratch Mm -hmm. where i was able to get some clarity from him was when i had a draft of the book. And I sat him down over three days to read it. I guess that was in 1999. We, we met in Germany and I would read him a chapter at a time until he got bored and then we would take a walk and go somewhere else and then read the next chapter. <laughs> right so he could point out what was wrong and what needed changing and there were some instances where he told me you know this isn't correct but leave it in the book because it's funny and the people Mm. need a laugh so give them a joke Mm. so and then interviewing other people was usually more straightforward right they weren't as bamboozling with their language or you know as scratch i mean some weren't that far off necessarily Mm -hmm. but where it became difficult is when you had conflicting testimony right and so that was where like fact checking and double checking and counter checking needed to come into play and if it was a case (laughs) of talking about uh who played what on a recording session or who wrote a song or where did it come from. Those things uh, can be checked factually mm-hmm. most of the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Where
2: it was more difficult is when it had to do with personal recollections,
0: mm-hmm. things
2: that happened in personal life. And sometimes, you know, you could check the gleaner or other right. other published sources, there might be accounts. Now, I mean, you know, no disrespect to the gleaner, but it isn't always necessarily, uh, <laughs> exactly. yeah, 100% accurate either.
1: Right, but, right, which means that there is something to a kind of cultural way of reporting on information or on occurrences, perhaps.
2: I think one of the things that happens is that, um, You know, it's often been said that Jamaican popular culture is an oral culture. It's not a written based culture necessarily. And that's especially true in places like Kendall and Hanover, where scratch comes from, you know, this these Mm -hmm, little mm -hmm. impoverished hamlets that are as far Mm -hmm. from uh, the city as you can possibly get. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it was challenging, but not impossible. Um, I remember as well, and I'm paraphrasing here, and I wouldn't want to misrepresent him, but I remember Linton Quazy Johnson saying to me once about, because I had mentioned, you know, that I know I'm aware of my limitations as an outsider. I mentioned right. it in, in the introduction to, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. and I remember Linton saying to me, well, yes, um, outsiders have limitations, however... Outsiders are also able to have a perspective. He was essentially saying an outsider can be more objective.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I took that to heart.
0: Right.
2: I, it's, for instance, um, it may be difficult for an outsider to write convincingly about the internecine battles that took place in Jamaica in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. On the other hand, it's probably equally, if not more difficult, for a Jamaican to write about those battles without being partial to one side or the other.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So,
2: you know it's it's something like that maybe it's a two-edged sword or however you want to look at it
1: right oh man you know i have here you can't see me um but maybe i can let you (laughs) i have here a i think the first issue
0: oh yeah (laughs) of the
1: Upsetter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and, and something is so interesting about this, the Lee Scratch Perry, The Upsetter, issue number one, deluxe special edition in winter 1989, 1990, where of course um, you are here listed under journalism and research um, as one of the, the co-contributors in that regard. And something that's so interesting to me about this magazine, is it a, is it a magazine?
2: I guess. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess. it was. <laughs>
1: is its inclusion of the postcards.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So what do you know about that? Why include postcards yeah in a magazine about Lee Scratch Perry?
2: So that magazine has this so so it's a complicated <laughs> story. Um so when what I need to, how I need to begin to tell you the tale of the magazine, we need to go back to that same traumatic time when the Black Ark had become a dilapidated shell, but had not, the fire had not happened yet. And-
1: but can I just interject here just quickly to say that even the burning of the Black Ark is one of those Occurrences that has is shrouded in so much mystery. I mean, you still think is now that a, a building going up in flames, people will say it happened at X date. Even if they can't say the time, they can say morning or night. You would you would think that there was some specificity, okay. some concretizing that could happen, but it it's still shrouded
2: in well, so much mystery. Okay. So one reason for that is the disinformation that's all over the internet. From from people who should know better, (laughs) (laughs) from publications who should know better, right. right. And then it takes on its own reality and its own life. Yeah, and partly the date it dates back to um, a magazine article that was published in the UK in 1984, where a date was stated that turns out not to be factually correct. Right. And it's not the factually incorrect date that's more commonly used now, but it was a factually incorrect (laughs) date. But anyway, it's just one of those
0: things.
2: (laughs) I think one of the reasons why there's so much mystery about it is because Scratch himself spoke about it in so many contradictory ways himself. Um at one point he told me, No, I didn't burn it. Then, of course, when we sat down with the manuscript. And I looked him in the eye and I said, you know, how did it burn? And he said, I, I, of course, I, I burned it. Of course, I burned it. It's me who I throw gas on it and light it. So Mm. it's like, well, okay, so why did you do that? Blah, blah, blah. But in terms of the dates, you know, Scratch was never one for dates, not even when he Mm. was lucid. right i
1: mean this is why he didn't show up to his gigs on yeah by the time
2: by the time i met him he he was not you know dates were like you know he would say to you point blank that's not i'm not that's not my department to tell you the date." Mm -hmm. you know so and then i think (laughs) in general there's a lot of that so i tried to check with the other eyewitnesses well his kids were kind of too young to be able mm-hmm. to be precise about it. And then some people had vested interests to say that they were there when they weren't necessarily there. And that's mm-hmm. then when you get some confusing, some testimony about it. it happened in the morning, it happened in the evening, blah, blah, blah. But this mm-hmm. time around, with grilling and re-grilling and checking and rechecking, with like all the eyewitnesses who are still live, more or less i was able to get better information and also some interviews i had conducted earlier with people who are no longer with us Mm
0: -hmm.
2: going back to those interviews and also there's video footage of the aftermath not the immediate aftermath but there's video footage from before from 1981 proving that it hadn't burned yet and then there's Mm -hmm. video footage from 1982 where it's pretty obvious that it had burnt so Mm -hmm. it had to have happened somewhere between those two filmings (laughs) right and then you know i tried to get hard data even from the fire department and their Mm. their excuse to me was that the records for those dates there was, they're not computerized and they were physically stored mm-hmm. in containers, and that rodents entered mm-hmm. the containers and ate it. Mm-hmm. So it was a bit like the dog ate my homework. It was, it was right. the much of a the dog ate my homework response as I've ever received from an official right. agency. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but so it's a bit like that right but the main thing is scratch himself and what he Mm -hmm. said about it and it was interesting for me that period when the ark became a dilapidated shell and then burned that was the only time period that he couldn't face talking about rationally that that was when he became overwhelmed and like moved me on to something else and when I brought up some people who'd been around, he had this kind of dramatic reaction. Mm-hmm. So one of them was this man named Hank Targowski. So this is, this is what happened. And this is what, how we can lead back to the Upsetter Magazine issue one. Right. Yeah. So um, Hank Targowski was uh, an American from Chicago who ended up in Amsterdam. In the late 70s you know there were like a countercultural hippie scene in amsterdam in those days so a lot of american dropouts and people on the run from the vietnam war or whatever they found their way to amsterdam and hank was one of them and he teamed up with an an african-american there named billy and uh they started a company called black star liner where they were hank went to jamaica and did some licensing deals with various producers to do reissues and uh to do overseas distribution of jamaican reggae so one of the people he went to see was scratch and he went to see scratch at a time when scratch had banished all outsiders from the black Ark. Oh. the black mm-hmm. Ark was dilapidated but still intact and so hank licensed some material from scratch that he released in holland on 12 inch and they were working on a new album which came out as the return of pipecock jackson but it was supposed Mm -hmm. to be an album and a tour the tour never happened scratch went berserk and ejected everybody from the studio and this was they they spent a lot of money refurbishing the studio to Scratch's specification they mm. bought new reel-to-reel tape recorders and a new mixing desk and new amplifiers and new equipment and they built this drum booth that had a duck pond under the floor oh
0: my. yeah scratch <laughs>
2: said you know during the day the the ducks could go around and rip up the plants while they were were recording and then when it was time to shut the studio down, the ducks could come back into the pond, and it was about getting the sound of water. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. anyway, um, when I asked Scratch about that time period, he made it sound like they came, they were set it, they put in new equipment, the equipment didn't work. so I kicked them all out of the studio, and I threw all the equipment into the septic tank. Well, he did that, but he didn't do it all in the same instance
0: he mm. did it
2: over a period of time
0: right. and
2: we know this because when howard johnson went to jamaica in september 81 i think i think howard started filming in like either april may june between like june and september or it might have been april and september he filmed mm-hmm. in jamaica for this uh six-part television series for Channel 4 in the UK called Deep Roots Music. If you go and you look at that footage, you will see Scratch. The, the arc is graffiti strewn and right. the, it's dilapidated, but everything is still in there. All the, mm. the organ is still in there, the bass guitar, the, you know, and, you, and then he walks upstairs into the control room. It's all still intact. And that mm. new Allen and Heath mixing desk that hank and billy bought for him is there and it's set up and it's right. still functioning so the way scratch tells it is like oh, they turned on the equipment it didn't work i kicked them out and i threw it in the septic tank and then i burned the studio down but it's like well yes you did that but that was probably over the space of about two years <laughs> 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 so but when time but when what does i time mean anyway but when i <laughs> spoke to him about that time and i brought up hank he was trying to say to me he didn't know who Hank was He only knew Billy And he became mm. very agitated And he went a little berserk mm. uh, What does berserk mean here? He He became Too agitated to talk about it He couldn't, okay. he couldn't Settle and think and say This is what happened or oh I don't know or... it, it obviously Was the trauma was Still there So, everything else he could talk about, but not that. So,
1: listeners, this is where it got weird. David Katz continued talking, I continued listening, and by all accounts, our conversation was being recorded. But when I checked back, this portion was gone. It was missing. It was as if it had never happened. In all the seasons and all the episodes of For Posterity, this had not happened before. I don't chalk it up to chance. So, we leave space here, in this conversation. We leave space here, and we call it the dub. This pause lasted a total of 21 minutes. I've collapsed that time here, and when we return to the conversation, Will have advanced past. Here we go. Back into the conversation. I guess I'm interested in, in hearing your thoughts um, as we kind of wrap up here on mm-hmm. you know, what you think it was that happened with Dub here in Jamaica, right? So your point, even about um, Gabriel Selassie's uh, Dub Club and choosing to. Mm-hmm being, let's say, forced um, to have it at his home because the venue spaces weren't doing it in Kingston. What do you think pushed Dub out if something pushed it out at all?
2: Yeah. uh, So, you know, I talk about this in Solid Foundation and Oral History of Reggae, which I can alert um, your listeners that a revised and expanded edition is due out for publication in uh, I think it's October this year. Oh, They've great. changed the date. It was it was already supposed to be out. <laughs> right. I delivered I delivered the manuscript back in July. So you it's know I've done problem. my bit. <laughs> yeah. So, but in in that book I talk about essentially what happened was that, um, with slang tang and the advent of. Uh, it's a contested term. Some people call it digital reggae. I know that um, Ray Hearn objects to that term, but then I think Ray's objection, I think he's misunderstood what people are referring to when they say digital. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. he's saying that the music wasn't recorded in digital recording studios, but what made it digital was that it used the Casio was a semi-digital piece, the, the Casio MT-40 was right. a semi-digital, semi-digital uh, technology, but anyway uh, so if you want to call it computerized reggae is another one, and co- you know Ray objects to that too because they weren't using computers exactly, but so you could say synthesizer driven and drum machine
0: mm-hmm.
2: so when that happened in the mid-80s slang tang kind of Changed the way that music was produced in jamaica overnight is what i say in solid foundation by and large and what happened was king jeremy released an album called computerized dub mm-hmm. and he never di- and he never did another one again <laughs> and, and and the re and the reason why is when you listen to it the rhythms are fantastic but they don't They're not very suitable for the dub format. Mm -hmm. If you have the sound of hand on skin beating a conga drum, for instance, there's so much you can do in a dub with that, that you can't do in the same way with a drum machine drum beat. Mm. Does that make sense?
1: It does, but I want you to kind of walk listeners through why that is. Is it because of the the quality? It's too.
2: It's because the computerized, the the digital, the uh, drum machine. It's too clean. Is it's two dimensional. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't bend it and stretch it the same way you can with a, an acoustic instrument. And it's the same. So if all you're using is a synthesizer and a drum machine, there's not that much you can do with it in dub. Steely and Cleavy did a dub album again, and they only did one, to my knowledge, a a, a, a synthesizer and drum machine dub album. You know, it just sounds too flat. It didn't lend itself to the format. And okay, you might get away with it on a 45 B-side, If the main purpose of the B-side is that the selector can flip it over and someone can toast on it, they can do that. There's no problem with that. But in terms of a long-playing dub album format, it didn't really work. It was too tedious. So what happened? So dub kind of died out in Jamaica in the same way that ska died out in Jamaica. You know, if you think about ska from like 1967 or late 66, there's no ska in Jamaica. You know, you don't, you never hear it again. But then in the 80s, in the late 70s, early 80s in the UK, you had this ska movement. right? And then you've had these successive waves. You had all these waves of ska in the US and then in Japan, but you never had it in Jamaica again. So, dub was a little bit like that. Dub had lost its purpose. And also, dub's main, the dub album, the main place, the main marketplace for the dub album was the UK and later the US. Dub albums didn't sell very well in Jamaica. Right. Okay, so when that happened and dub waned in Jamaica, all these dubheads in the UK couldn't get their dub fix. But by then, the technology had become very affordable. So you had these guys started to set up their little bedroom studios. Alpha and Omega were one. Then you had the Disciples, these two brothers that then one brother quit. So the other brother was really the Disciples <laughs> since, <laughs> since then. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then this whole what began to be termed UK steppers scene sprung up. Mm-hmm. And then that spread to Europe and from Europe it spread all over the world, even influencing places like Brazil. Mm-hmm. There's a dub scene in Brazil and in Mexico and most of those places they're not looking to Jamaica for their inspiration so much. They're looking to the UK. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... You had people like Don Corleone. After right. he did his drop his drop leaf rhythm thing, and he's like, "Oh, I want to produce dub. How do I do that?" And he looked online and he looked at a video of Mad Professor mixing, and he studied it, <laughs> and then he started to he started to try his hand at some dubs from that. Mm-hmm. And then I guess you had I don't know, did Rory ever do any dubs, Rory Stone Love, or not really?
1: Not really, no.
2: Yeah, probably not. So mm-hmm. I think you had, you know, you had one and two producers in Jamaica. And then more recently, King Jemmy right. started to do double it albums back. again. But mm-hmm. but I think that was more through VP asking him to do it. Mm-hmm. People like Carter, Carter Van Pelt. But it doesn't matter. They're fantastic albums. Like right, uh, they're amazing. Kill, kill, yeah, yeah. Kills the virus with dub is right up there with his work from the seventies, mm-hmm, in my mm-hmm. view. And there's and there's like a an Rossi dub album that's quite a good dub album as well. Right, I think part of that it was. I think part of that it was also the influence of Jammy coming up to tour, and doing uh, live dub shows which were kind of pioneered by mad professor yes professor when when he was touring with scratch after a while when maybe the money that the promoters were offering in the u.s wasn't so great he stripped the band down smaller and smaller you know down to a four-piece band then he thought okay i'll do it as a live dub show no band just me and scratch where he would bring a mixing desk on the road and right and A dats and mix live, so and I think worked. then you know, like, yeah, so then you know, like Prince Jammy came up to tour King Jamie with uh, a mixing desk, and then that probably helped stimulate the idea, oh, why don't I do another dub album too? right, yeah,
1: yeah, you had said in this that dub had lost its purpose in Jamaica
2: yeah, I think so. What because from so if we think again if you read Solid Foundation and we go back and we think about what happened with dub and before dub you had version right which wasn't quite the same right so if you right. think about if you think about if you go back to early 1950s and Count Machuki on uh, Sir Coxon's downbeat mm-hmm. doing these, rhyming wise cracks and jive talk in between the records mm-hmm. that's kind of how it starts right then when you, when you get an instrumental b-side that made space mm-hmm. they don't have to do it in between records they can play the a side and then flip the b side and toast over the version mm-hmm. then then when you come into the early 70s and you have tubby starts to experiment with effects with uh, reverb and echo that made dub it kind of it turned as i would say it turned dub into an art form it it developed dub as as a genre and then you started to get the dub album herman chinloy said he did aquarius dub so that when the sound systems were playing and they had to keep flipping the 45 to give the toaster space to toast on he said oh why don't I do a whole dub album then that way they won't have to keep flipping the record they can just let it run as
1: always I thank you for listening I'm the rhythm writer this was a conversation about dub and as always you know this is for posterity